This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Today I'll be talking to Liam Carson, director of Imram, about this year's festival, which opens today. And we'll both be talking to Alana Hopkin, whose honest and heartbreaking literary memoir of the lives of two Irish writers, A Very Strange Man, a memoir of Aidan Higgins, has just been published by New Island Books. So the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. Um, and Lena Kiover, either Fian this Fleshor, and Tom Diver, either Harkadus Agasolus, and Homa Heshtoch, either Vreg Agas Ear, and Blas Casta, either Hyarav Agas Villish, and Second Sucker, either Vrishta Agas Yesha, and Anal Dine, either Haven Agasirsha. An spals tostach, idir chala agz chushocht, is aun a hagen to arum, is aun a ha an dawn. That was Judy Field reading aun from Eigse Chinetach, or Kinetic Poetry, a project that features a wide range of work from established and new poets rendered into short kinetic text films that feature imaginative, visual and typographic interpretations of their work. And that is part of this year's Imram Festival. And here to talk to us about this year's festival is Festival Director Liam Carson. It's hard to believe that a whole year has passed since we were talking before about the last edition of Imram, but it's Imram time again. And it's a little bit different this time, Liam. I know that like last year's festival for obvious reasons, was entirely online. But this year's is a bit different. Yeah, well, it's a hybrid festival in some ways. We have four live events and luckily enough, we were able to have our flagship musical concert this year in the Pavilion Theatre. Um, they're up to 90% capacity and we're actually selling very well for that. We're doing um, John Prine's Songs in Irish this year. We've also got a gala reading in the Museum of Literature in Stevens Green. We've got people like Alan Titley, Newport, Roisin Sheehy reading. We've got the, the Laureate and Nanog, Annie uh, Glenn. Then we've got Rec, the, the Spoken Word Club. So we're actually going to be in a pub for the first time in a few years. So so that's great, yeah. But at the same time, we have a lot of, we went down the path of high quality online films and we've got a lot of that again this year. And I think it, we've, got, we've got the balance about right. I mean, I'd say the balance will be different again. We'll have more live events next year, but we're still in the middle of this pandemic. So it's, it's best to play it rel- relatively safe up to a certain point. But it's great to be having live events as well as online events. Indeed. And, and the first of those is, is actually uh, on tonight, uh, for anybody listening, this, this is you know, t- tonight, Thursday, the 11th of November is the event. In the, in the in the pavilion and just as a matter of interest Liam John Prine why John why John Prine well he died of COVID last year he was somebody who was very much loved by the people of Ireland he used to play here an awful lot his wife was from Ireland he had a house in Kinvara down in Galway um, he's what just one of those great songwriters <laughs> Bob Dylan actually compared him to, to Proust <laughs> of all people and uh, the thing about uh, his songs on one on one level are simple but they're incredibly poetic and he was a great storyteller a great sense of humor and he's one of those sort of people that he was just a decent human being and he wrote songs about decent human beings and he hit 
there was something resonant, resonant about humanity in his songs. And they go, there, 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 there's an, it's kind of like Americana, like Springsteen. He goes into a whole world of people. There are v- Vietnam yeah. vets. There are people whose marriages are breaking up. Uh, there are people looking at their past and so on and so forth. So, so it's kind of perfect for him. And we like to pick songwriters who, who have a connection to storytelling and who have connection to poetry. And Prime just follows perfectly into that slot. Scanning through the program, I mean, some of the things that jumped out at me, I'm blasting the gunalock. A celebration of Donegal in song and poetry, which is two online films. And so that, that kind of struck me. Well, yes, I mean, what we did last year, we did uh, we went to, to, to West Kerry last year. Uh, we had music and poetry from Cork O'Gavena. So this actually gives us, uh, an opp- in a way, the pandemic actually gives us an opportunity to go to the Gaeltacht areas, film people from the Gaeltacht, poets, singers, songwriters, musicians, uh, you know, in, in, in the Gaeltacht itself. And so we were able to, to, to create these beautiful shows of the very best of Gaeltacht music and literature and to bring them to a wider audience. And I think one of the things that's happening with these shows that we create online is that we're, we're able to bring our, our work to an audience throughout the world literally in every country across the world, you know, that you will have people in America and people in Australia and so on and so forth actually listening to these shows and being able to experience genuine culture in Irish, like the real deal and fear of rain, you know, the pure drop of, of absolutely brilliant song and poetry in Irish. And I'm seeing great names there. I'm sorry. I'm seeing Moraine Nivoini, Nini Vernamora, Dini Ren, Koshni Inliach. I'm seeing Kahlo Sharkey, Ethany Gallagher. Yeah, I mean, if you take somebody like Ethany Gallagher, I mean, she, she, she comes out of the directly out of the storytelling tradition and she's she's now publishing books which are th- these long narrative poems based on folklore and based on tradition so you, you have this sort of synthesis between the old and the new between the tra- traditional and the modern and then you've got Sam O'Farry who's a new up and coming spoken word poet and you know that there are new voices coming forward I mean one of the things that I'm delighted about the Imran program this year is that if you look at Irish a minority language there are only so many people who speak the language there are only so many people who write in the language only so many people who read in the language but despite those restraints you've got you've got Roisin Sheehy who's just published her first book um, you've got Andreas Vogel who's an absolutely amazing writer from Germany who's now living in Connemara who's brought out a, po- a little book of micro poems which are like fragments of ancient Greek poetry really incredibly imaginative stuff you've got Colin Ryan we've got some writers from Australia and we've got Colin Ryan now, here's a guy Colin Ryan in Australia he's never been to Ireland he taught himself Irish online. Now, now this guy, he's absolutely obsessed with uh, Chekhov's uh, short stories and he's obsessed with uh, the fiction of the fantastic. So he's created these very strange and surreal stories that are set in Australia and they're written in modern Irish and they're absolutely and utterly amazing. And I think it's astonishing that, that... that here you have people automatically associate the Irish language with Ireland, but it's actually breaking out of those confines. And, and one of the things you know with the internet is that we're able to break out of the boxes and present writing by people who are writing in Ireland, in Irish, and in, in places all across the world. That's amazing. And I, I also see because one one of the things that, that I was interested in was the the Scottish Gaelic kind of element. And I, I was listening to the uh, an excerpt from Glossa or Green Grey Lockdown with with Roddy Gorman. That's a fascinating piece of work too, isn't it? Yeah, I mean the whole thing about Roddy. I mean. He's one of these characters. Rody just produces poetry at an astonishing rate in Irish, in Scottish Gaelic and in English. And he, he's playing about with the languages all the time in this particular one, Glasso. It's in Scottish Gaelic, but he also creates these very interesting English versions where he goes into what the actual words mean in Gaelic 
and he 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 gets these he creates these compound words and he creates these very funny very play he plays on the original Gaelic and what what he does with this he he looks at the entire community on, on the island of sky the island of sky where he lives and it's it's a lyrical diary you know I and mean, people would expect things about the pandemic or whatever be to be dark and depressing and all the rest but you know it's anything but he he he, he celebrates the absolute and utter total beauty of of nature around him. He listens and he looks at everything. I mean, one of the things about Rody is he's, he's a haiku poet as well. And he, he sort of tuned into being in the moment, which is what a haiku poet does. And he's able to channel that into, into longer poems. Uh, and he's, he's just an incredible poet. I, I think, you know, Rody deserves a lot more attention uh, as a writer. And what, and what we've done with this project is we've got Liam Grant. Liam Grant is a, uh, has been editing a lot of these films for us on sound engineering. And I, I, it just occurred to me, God, why don't I ask Liam to do the music on this? Because he used to be in various bands and stuff, and he hadn't done music for quite a while. And he's created an absolutely amazing soundtrack uh, for, for the poems. And then we've got another beautiful project by Rody as well, which is something we staged live a couple of years back in the Maritime Museum in Dunleary, which is a, a, series, a book of uh, tercets, you know, tree-rainy, three-line poems. They're not haiku, they're, they're tercets, similar to the haiku in a way, where he goes along the, the, the coast of, you know, you know, of Dublin and uh, Dunleary, Black Rock, uh, Sandy Coast, Sea Point, and then going up into the, the, the Wicklow Mountains. So, you know, terse is what it's called. In, in English, he, he calls it pilgrimage time journey so that's that's an example of Rody's wordplay and they're beautiful avocations of the landscapes of, of, of the kingdom of Kuala basically and again we've got beautiful uh, photographs by Margaret Lonergan and a soundtrack composed by Sean McAuley I mean what happened was we we actually recorded that that performance live so in some cases we've had recordings and we just we, we, we then fuse them with the images and we create the films we have a snow project now we didn't actually record that at the time but what we've done is we've re-recorded it we got all the, the, the all the poets to actually uh, re-record their work and then we sent the sound files to Ed O'Reilly who's over in Boston in the United States now and and to compose a new soundtrack and uh, you know put music guitar uh, music with effects with the poetry we give that to Liam Grant who mixes it up with the images and all the rest so so again it's that process that we learned how to do last year of you know, people in separate rooms but coming together to create amazing stuff online so and it's an archive there that's going to be there you know for, for all time and speaking Liam speaking of online because one of the things that, that intrigued me about this year's program is you're using the, the old man Ho Shilta you're using the social media a lot more I mean I'm, I'm looking at at least there's a couple of projects that are that are based on on, on social media platforms like this the, the haiku and the intriguing sounding Aixia kinetic or kinetic poetry. We've had a certain social media presence. I mean, lucky we got some money from the Arts Council this year for 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 development and and all the rest of it. So we were able to put some money into the the, the social media side of things. And what we've done is there are two projects. One is haikus. Uh, you know, by we're Gabriel Rosenstock. No, it's it's. Japanese haiku. No, it's not the four classic um, J- Japanese ha- haiku, Basho, Busan, Isa. It's 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 modern haiku haiku that have been written over the past 150, 200 years or whatever. And some of them are very freeform haiku, very funny, witty haiku. So the haiku is just perfect for social media. So Kieran Nolan, who designs a lot of, of material for us, has uh, just 
very simple little slides with the original kanji uh, and then uh, then Roman version in Japanese and then the the the, po- the, the, the poem in in, in Irish. So they're, they're going up on. We've started posting them on Facebook and on Twitter. We're going to start putting out stuff on Instagram as well. Then the kinetic text I came across work by uh, Kieran Omar where he had created a t- kinetic text version of a poem by Katrina Nichlerchen that I, that that I saw online and I thought it would be nice to to give him an invitation to create some kinetic text. So we, we have a whole series of, of poems by various people. There's Julie Field who's just published her first collection of, of, of poetry. She's based down in Cork. We've got Julie Bamut Bretnach. I mentioned Australia early on. Julie Julie is uh, Bamut Bretnach is from the uh, Catherine and Nillen uh, in Connemara. She's been living in Australia for the past ten years. Um, she's very interested in Aboriginal culture. She's a psychologist. She writes what is called psych poetry. So we've got some of her poems which are about our Aboriginal sites. So we will have interpretations of those. We've got uh, a poem by Marius uh, Barocas, translated by Doreen Nikhaneja, which is a uh, Prospero's book. So a lot of poems that I selected for the Kinetic uh, Text Project are, are poems which are about texts or about words or about letters so that you can actually play about. And then we've got these beautiful poems. Gabriel Rosenstock, now he's written a new book called Cora Lee Conversations with Lee Hay. Lee Hay was this amazing um, medieval Japanese poet who was kind of like a precursor of or except in, 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 in Chinese. And Gabriel wrote a whole series of letters when he was very ill in hospital a couple of years ago of poems, you know, in the form of letters or a conversation to Li Hei. So we have these interpretations where you have Li Hei on his horse in 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 the in the, in the little video. So we've we've got the first four of those have been done and they're going up. And over the next few months, we're going to be rolling out uh, more kinetic uh, texts um, on, on all the different social media platforms. So we so we hope to develop that whole side of things. Also, we have a new website. One of the things that we're going to be doing is over the next few months we'll be starting to put out reviews of books in Irish because it's very important to, to have a platform where work in Irish is being reviewed because there aren't enough platforms really for, for new work in Irish to, to be reviewed. You know, and there's wonderful stuff coming out. Like, for example, there's uh, Tig McGonaghan has just got a, a book just come out with his new imprint, um, Barzaz. He's got a novel called Madame Lazar, uh, which is getting amazing reviews at the minute. And I've just heard, you know, in Shuppelore and uh, Harcourt Street are, were saying that it's, it's literally just rushing out of the... Uh, out of out of the shop, you know. So we'd be having he'd be doing an interview with Cahill Porter uh, as part of the festival on Sunday the fourteenth. That's right. I see. I need and and there's there's lots of other stuff. I mean, there's there's translations from Garrett Trackle. There's um, Biddy Jenkinson. It's it's a really it's a really excellent program. And congratulations on it, um, Liam. And just to say, I mean, I mean, where if people want tickets. What do they do? Where do they go? You, you mentioned the website. Is, is that where they go? Yes. If people want to get tickets, we do have a new website. Uh, it's imram.ie. If you go there, you can see links where you just click onto the event. There'll be an image for the event that will take you straight to the, the, the booking place for, for the event. Some of the events are on Eventbrite, so you just book there. Uh, the vast majority of them are free. We are asking people to donate, though, which would be very nice if they would do. But all the information, goes, just go straight to the website in the first place, Imram. Also, follow us on uh, Facebook and Twitter, and we're putting up information on a constant basis about all of our events. It's great, Liam. Thanks a million for coming in um, this morning. And, and, and again, it's, a, it's, a, it's an adventurous and exciting program, and I strongly urge anybody to, to, to look at that website and book yourself some treats. And to end with, here's a taste of Roddy Gorman's Glassa. Slag 
Susanas for sale at Vialu. Snashinu tubdish, a larach, tararan the surda kadish, a slachkadich, is a glackrich, is a fetalich can skur, a hewn, ach, unyan and kian. Listen, the whole sleepy life world, not moving in the grey green lockdown, and loud up over there. The big house up above the home farm tribe village with the for sale whisper sign. And beside it, the battlefield farm ruin mark site where the free joiners were hard at it, hammering and pounding and whistling away all the time. Och, ages ago now. Alana Hopkin is a writer based in Kinsale. In 2020, she was the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Fellow at University College Cork. Her story collection, The Dogs of Inishir, was published by Dawkey Archive Press in 2017. Intriguing and unsettling stories, Ava Walsh wrote in the Irish Times. And he also said it's an impressive collection with a clear, confident style, allowing each central crisis to be revealed with rewarding clarity and directness. Alana's stories have appeared in the London Magazine, the Cork Literary View, and White was shortlisted for the Orte Short Story Award. She has published two novels with Hamish Hamilton, A Joke Goes a Long Way in the Country in 1982 and The Outhole in 1985 and several works of non-fiction. Well, today on Books for Breakfast, we are delighted to be talking to Alana Hopkin about A Very Strange Man, a memoir that she's written about the writer Aidan Higgins and her life with him, which was published in 2000. 2021 by New Island Books. Aidan Higgins, described by one critic as the missing link between high modernism and the present, was one of Ireland's most singular and distinguished writers. He published short stories, travel pieces, radio drama, autobiography and novels, including the iconic Langrish Go Down, a largely autobiographical novel about a Catholic family in a crumbling big house in Kildare, and it was adapted for the screen by Harold Pinter and starred Jeremy Irons and Judy Dench. His other works included Balcony of Europe, Scenes from a Receding Past, Bornham Night Ferry and several notable volumes of autobiographies such as Donkey's Years and Dog Days. The world of the memoir A Very Strange Man is an Irish literary one set between 1986 when Alana and Aidan Higgins first met. He was 23 years older than her, right through to 2015 and his eventual death, Alana caring for him right to the end. This is an inspiring, searingly honest book which chronicles a love affair, a deep friendship which survived 29 years, fueled by a shared passion for books and writing and both were in love with each other right to the moment when Aidan drew his last breath. So, Alana, you are very welcome to the breakfast table this morning. Thank you, Ender, and thanks for that lovely introduction. <laughs> it's lovely to be here. Well, to start off with, Alana, you were born in Singapore, where your father was a doctor in the British Colonial Service. You grew up in London, you spent holidays in Kinsale, and you eventually seriously moved there when you were 31 years of age. And when the memoir starts, you're living in Kinsale. It's the 1980s. You're a journalist. You're a writer with two novels under your belt. And you're really happy there. And just reading it, I felt it was the Kinsale, which comes across as quite an unusual place, very bo- 
Bohemian, 23 pubs, lots of restaurants, <laughs> quite a few lively blow-ins. Derek Mahan, the poet, is living there. So is the poet Desmond O'Grady. And in fact, it's actually Derek Mahan who plays a pivotal role in your first meeting, Aidan Higgins. So I was just wondering, might you begin by reading from the memoir and giving us some background to this important first meeting between you and Aidan Higgins? Yes, well, it was a surprise that Derek knew Kinsale. I met him in London through my own work. He wanted to make a radio, a, a television play out of my second novel. And it didn't work out, but we discovered Kinsale in common, which was very odd sitting in Kensington and talking about the lobster pot and and Hedley McNeese's bar, the spinnaker. And it's, I guess, ever since sort of the 50s, Kinsale has attracted the kind of people who like small seaside places and can live well on a fairly limited income. And so it's always had a kind of bohemian core and people mm-hmm. come and go still which i like there's a constantly changing kind of squad of friends and you meet new people and other people move away and so on so it's not like living in a static small town maybe because it's a seaport as well it has that tradition that the locals are very used to different people living there and are very welcoming and very very great fun in themselves i mean it's not a sort of two society place we, we all muck in And in fact, we did a lovely event only a month ago uh, for Derek's first anniversary. And, well, not the whole town, obviously, but about 80 people got together in a hotel function room and we read some poems and we told some stories. And it was a lovely attendance of like the whole town. Um, I like that about Kinsale, that it's, it's very equal. We're all the same. Oh, it sounds lovely. It makes me want to go and live there, Alana. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Peter and I will be driving down straight after this podcast. I was just <laughs> wondering, though, would you, would you read the opening of it? Because actually, it's, I remember first hearing it in uh, the Sunday Miscellany anthology celebrating 50 years of it. And I was just immediately smitten by the writing and the story. <laughs> and because I suppose uh, Peter and I had known Derek Mann a little bit as well, it was very interesting to hear how you actually met Aidan. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, thank you. So, yes. um, And in fact, it was that Sunday Miscellany event was a great impetus to starting the book because I heard about Mm. it and I went and bagged 1986 because I wanted to write about Mm -hmm. meeting Aidan. So that led me into writing the whole memoir and it was a wonderful motivation for it. So here is some of it. Thank you. For some weeks, my friend Derek Mann had been awaiting the arrival of Higgins, his friend, the novelist Aidan Higgins. After many years out of Ireland, Higgins was living in Wicklow. Seamus Heaney had told him that if he returned to Ireland, he could become a founder member of an association of writers and artists called Ace Dorna, and the government would give him an annual income, provided he dedicated himself full-time to writing. He was on the next plane, and after a quick visit to Dublin to seal the formalities, he headed for Wicklow, where his brother was living. But after two years, Higgins was not happy in the depths of the country. Derek immediately solved the problem. He should move to Kinsale, which had 23 pubs and plenty of congenial company. He gave Higgins my number as someone who could help him find a cottage with a sea view at a reasonable rent, a tall order even in 1986. He rang me one evening His voice was a pleasant surprise, what you would call an educated voice. 
more English than Irish and very serious, definitely the voice of a reader of the Times Literary Supplement, a man who would know a hawk from a handsaw. Derek asked if I would help him to entertain Higgins. It was late October, but still dry and sunny. Kinsale looked gorgeous in its autumn colours, the grey stone buildings against a blue sea. He's coming down by helicopter, was the latest news, followed next week by no sign of Higgins. Another week went by. Then finally some news. Higgins was arriving on Wednesday. Could I join them for dinner? I said I'd meet them in the bar after my swim in the hotel pool. I remember having wet hair and being too impatient to dry it, suddenly curious to see what Higgins looked like. Suppose, I thought idly, he turns out to be someone significant in my life, and his first view of me is of an otter-like wet head. I dismissed this untypical romantic thought from my thoroughly rational mind and headed for the bar. And there he was, in a wine-red sweater, medium-height and build, long reddish-brown hair, beard, granny glasses, slightly stooped, engaged in close conversation with an enormous Viking called Sven. I remember Sven's handshake almost breaking my bones, while the touch of Aidan's hand was like velvet. Sven was a sea captain, Aidan told me in his extraordinary voice, who had once killed a man in the course of his duties. We dined at the shipwreck, a new place near the hotel. Derek did not drink wine, so Aidan and I agreed on a bottle of Rioja. Derek knew that we were both interested in the writer Malcolm Lowry and introduced this topic. I listened to Aidan explaining a theory a Canadian friend had about Lowry. I liked the way he stood up for his friend's theory against my demolition of it. I liked the way he took me seriously and didn't flirt. Aidan ordered another bottle of Rioja, at which point Derek politely left. We first kissed in the street outside the shipwreck, and Aidan's glasses fell apart. Mine often did the same, and I was able to retrieve the pieces and put them together. Aidan was struck dumb with admiration at this feat. I noticed that his eyes were hazel exactly the same colour as mine. It was like looking into my own soul. The thunderbolt struck. I took his hand and we went back to my house and did not see Derek again until the Saturday. A nice pair was his amused greeting as we knocked contritely on his door. We had come to collect Aidan's things. We were moving in together. Oh, thanks, Alana. That is absolutely wonderful. Well done. And I <laughs> love the detail of it. I mean, we're oh, right there with you, great. remembering every single detail and your otter head and swimming. Yes. <laughs> There's a humour there as well, which is great. But that was 1986 and you were 37. He was 59. So yes. 22, 23 years in the difference. What was that like or did it make any difference to you? Certainly sounds like you there was an instant connection. Definitely, yes. And like for the first ten years or so, you know, it was absolutely fine. He looked much younger. He was very fit. He walked a lot. Didn't actually drink that much in spite of rumors to the contrary. And um the main areas where you'd notice it would be in music, for example. 
I'm a great admirer, of course, of Bob Dylan, and he absolutely loathed him. And uh, so the, the whole way through, you know, anything sort of rock, 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 um, what would you call it, Raikouder, all the people who meant a lot to me, even Buddy Holly was a total blank on him, meant nothing at all. So that was a big difference. But maybe yeah. I think it was an age thing, actually, too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Otherwise, no, because, you know, I, I yeah. like to live quietly anyway. So it wasn't a question yeah. of late nights out or. Yeah, I like that thing where you where you did say that you were both very quiet people and you suited each yes. other. Yeah. I was just thinking, Alan, I mean, Aidan Higgins was by then, he was a, you know, he's a well-known writer, Langrish Go Down, um, had been published, Fellow to Say, this his stories, which had been recommended by no less than yes. a person than Samuel Beckett to Joan Calder. There'd been Balcony of Europe, Born Home Night Ferry. Kind of a, in some ways you might think, a, you know, a writer is a writer, maybe. He wasn't necessarily, I suppose, extremely widely known and, and he, he'd been described as we noted earlier as the missing link between high modernism and, and the present so a very kind of distinguished presence I'd imagine and then, then I'm thinking you know two writers living together to many it might seem like a nightmare scenario to many it might seem like the perfect support system and I'm wondering you might think okay who better to understand each other than two people trying to create something to make imaginative work but was it like that or was it a fiery sort of experience ah uh. Well, let's put it this way. We never read each other's work to each other. That would have been our idea of a nightmare. But there was a big difference in that I was a journalist turned writer or turning writer. And he had never been a journalist. He had very little idea of the mechanics of things and writing to length and to deadline. So he was like, you know, the real artist type writer. And um, his whole attitude was was so different. We might have been almost doing different things in one way. Did you like his work at the time? Um, I didn't like Langrish very much because the language is so convoluted. It seemed to me rather old-fashioned, retro kind of thing, whereas I absolutely loved his book on Africa, Images of Africa, which is very short and very spare. And when he wrote a story, my God, the roof would come off. I mean, he'd do nothing else. He'd hardly sleep. He'd hardly eat. But he'd produce like 60 pages in four days. And then he'd t throw it at me and say, see if you can edit that down into something. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And this was pre-computer. Yeah. He liked the help in that way. But I was always like for the first few years anyway, very aware that he'd been at it much longer than me. He'd got 23 years of practice in. Mm -hmm. He'd been a published writer for that long. Yeah. So yeah. I taught myself not to despair and not to compare our work because it was so different. Yeah. And not to disrespect my work because it wasn't received the way his work was. So it yes. was like separate tracks, I suppose. But we did understand each other, like when, when you were stuck beginning a review or whatever. Mm -hmm. There'd be an instant kind of empathy. Yes, I know what mm. you're going through. Yeah, I think the memoir really gets that, the difference, but yet at the same time, the compatibility. And I think it's yes. a very good idea not to read each other's work. <laughs> we <laughs> good, follow, we follow that rule here too as well. Ah, that, 
that's nice to yeah, know. Yeah, we do. I think it's a much safer thing to do. But <laughs> his character, I think it was so well drawn by Yolana. He comes across as a very kind of complex individual. He's charming. He's easy to offend, eccentric, independent. He's hard on writers, I think, sometimes. But he's also hard on <laughs> you sometimes, not just in the area of your own writing, but also the way that you read. And um, I'm really pleased that you're going to read a short piece now where he actually ticks you off for your reading habits, doesn't he, Alana? Yes. Um, <laughs> um, he was determined to improve me. <laughs> and at 37, you don't necessarily want to be improved. However, it was all in good spirit. So mm-hmm. I had just, I'd finished writing a book about St. Patrick. So now that I was free to read again, I started catching up on the books that Aidan had brought with him from Wicklow. I picked up David Thompson's Woodbrook and hardly moved from my armchair until it was finished. Aidan took the battered paper back out of my hands. I see you read a book straight through from beginning to end. Well, yes, doesn't everyone? No, only dull people read a book straight through. What you do is you look at the opening shot I was 18 when I first saw Woodbrook. Excellent. Hard to beat a simple declarative sentence. Then you go to the ending. There were only a few words in the letter. It said what I knew it would say when I picked it up from the mat, that Phoebe was dead. Excellent again. But that way you know the ending. Do you really keep reading just to find out what happened next? He had me there. Whatever answer I gave would be wrong. It was like, when did you stop beating your wife? I was starting to learn that living with Aidan was a constant challenge, a challenge to my fixed ideas and to received wisdom, to the habits of a lifetime. He had a most unusual mind, and for all the jokes, he was never anything less than serious. I think I, I could never read like that. Though. What, what a great book, though, the... the, the... <laughs> Woodbrook. Oh, um, wasn't it? Yes. Oh my God. Um, I was thinking, I mean, one, one of the fascinating aspects of, of the book is that, it, you know, it's, it's obviously, it's an account of your, your life um, with Aidan Higgins and also of your own inner life and struggles. But it's also, I suppose, incidentally, a portrait of the Ireland of the times, which is, of course, a very different place from today's Ireland. You know, there are very memorable accounts of things like, you know, going, going to Dublin and seeing sort of the, what, the literary life yeah, there or going to Galway, the OA Arts Centre for what turned out to be a slightly disastrous reading or a visit with, <laughs> yes. you know, the larger than life kind of Edward Edward Delaney and the trip to Inish mm. which inspired your collection of, of stories. And all of it, I mean, everything that happened to me is this kind of keen observation, the keeping of notebooks and diaries at all at mm. all stages. I mean, that's how it's, 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 it's marvelous the way you're able to recover all of that through that detail. Well, I haven't moved house for 33 years now. So I have all the notebooks and I could put my hands on them. And they were, they were an absolute blessing. Mm. And some of the best pieces in the book, I think, came directly out of the notebook onto the page. Just describing that Ireland, it comes across, particularly literary Ireland, it comes across as a very sort of male place, a quite closed place in, in, in lots of ways. Would that be yes. accurate? Yes, there were very few women around. One that I remember very well was Leland Bardwell. But they just weren't there or else they didn't circulate, let's say, as much as the men who were often, you know, in demand for giving readings and things. And 
you did tend to run into the same people. It was Tony Cronin, it was Michael Hart. You had that account of this sort of almost sort of secret meeting in the Clarence where all these Irish Times contributors used to meet in the wood panelled kind of room with the then literary editor, Brian Fallon, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. <laughs> they were They were an interesting bunch of people who one of my friends told me were, were normally referred to as the crypto-fascists. And I never worked out <laughs> why. There was like Benedict Kiley, James Plunkett, Tony Cronin. Again, yeah. no women. Yeah, I know. Well, I even remember that yeah. uh, publishing starting off in the 1990s. Of course. To, yes. And of course, I had the name Enda. So I, I, I feel <laughs> that my manuscript was taken yes. because the publisher probably thought I was a man. <laughs> but anyway, um, I wanted to ask you as well about the 1988 Writers Conference held in Dunleary. Yes. <laughs> Derek Walcott, James Senior and Brodsky were there. I actually, when I was reading it, remembered it exactly because I was oh. um, a young teacher at the time and I was <laughs> sick and I cycled down to John Leary and I remember coming into the Royal Marine and just seeing Seamus Heaney yes. and them all standing there like these colourful literary birds. And you gave a really fantastic account of it and also of a reading Brodsky gave for Kinsale Arts Week later on. And that was, when, read, when I was reading it, I felt it was a really great time for you and Aidan at that time, wasn't it? It was such a vibrant literary time. You must have enjoyed it all, did it you, Alana? Was, yeah. Oh, yeah. And one of the few women around was Nula Nigonal, who was at that conference. And it, it was just amazing. And you'd be reading Richard Murphy and suddenly there was Richard Murphy reading for the festival. And this was a lot down to Desmond O'Grady's contacts as well as Derek's. Derek kind of kept in the background, but was, was there inviting people who maybe wouldn't have come if it hadn't been Derek inviting them. So, yes, but it was a very small world. Yeah, very small world. Um, but then the, the, there's a lot of joy in the book as well, isn't it? There's the joy of you finally getting to buy your house together in Kinsale after yeah. years of renting and moving between <laughs> the Dutch house and your parents' house in Summer Cove. That, that purchasing of the house and the garden brought you great happiness, didn't it? Yes, because neither of us ever thought we'd manage to buy a house being full-time writers. You just don't yeah. have the income. but. Aidan had his savings from teaching in Texas and he'd hidden them away mm. so well that he was never able to lo- lay his hands on them at short term. So that gave us a deposit. Right. And I qualified as a mm-hmm. low income first time buyer on some council scheme. So between us, we managed to swing it and it was an absolute treat. It was like a miracle. I mean, that strikes me a lot. I mean, because in, in spite because because what you're often describing in the book is is hardship, just the physical hardship of being, as you say, kind of two two writers with not a lot of income. I don't know, like the bank. You went to the bank for for to, to try and get a mortgage, and they kind of laughed at you, like sort of. There's all that kind of, you know. Of course, we're not going to give you a mortgage, all that kind of thing. And then, but also then the kind of meanness <laughs> yes. of publishers, small advances, and maybe also for. For Aiden, then I suppose there was a lack of response, yeah. maybe, or the inadequacy of responses to his work. So it was kind of, there's a lot of hardship, really, isn't there? Uh, apropos of which, I got a check yesterday for €23.71 royalties. Very in what good. other profession would you put up yeah. with that? And actually, yeah. Der- Derek was very practical in a way that Aiden wasn't and kept saying mm-hmm. to him, You shouldn't let them get away with that. They're giving you a beginner's advance. Right. Uh, and but it was tough for Aidan because it, suddenly I don't know what happened, but um, John McGahern started winning awards, and so did mm-hmm. John Banville, 
That's right. And Aidan didn't. And the first volume of his memoirs, Donkey's Years, which has been reissued with this one by New Island, came out the year before Angela's Ashes. And when Donkey's Years came out in paperback, everyone was talking about Angela's Ashes and nobody was talking about Donkey's Years. So he did, I think quite rightly, he felt a bit neglected. And another person who's always been very generous and helpful to Aidan was John Burnville, who actually said to him, you will never be appreciated in your lifetime. And he also said to him that he wouldn't have written Birchwood without Langrish. Yeah. Exactly, yes. Yes. The final third of the book makes for quite a difficult read, doesn't it? Because we, we then get into the area of the gradual breakdown of Aidan's health. And so how did that first manifest itself? And it, 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 it must have had a huge impact on you and your life as well, your writing life. Yes. The trouble is that, that you don't know at the time what's happening. And I think it first started to show when we did a fairly gruelling tour to New York and Toronto. Aidan was the one reading. I was just along for the fun of it. And he got quite overexcited, overstimulated. And when we came back home, he went manic. He had um, an episode, a long episode of mania, but it hadn't been diagnosed. And because he was a kind of eccentric person anyway, everyone just thought, oh, that's just Aiden being Aiden. I mean, he'd, he'd be up in the garden in raptures at the beauty of everything. And he'd say to me, would you please come and pour a bucket of cold water over my head? I can't stand it. It's so beautiful. And if he had been a, a less strange kind of person, alarm bells might have rung. But luckily, my sister-in-law is a GP. And I rang her about these strange things happening. And she said, take him down to the GP, which I did. And that was when we started to realize that this was more than eccentricity. Yeah, it's very, very tough. And and then, Alana, beyond that point, then it was really up to you then to try and hold things together, wasn't it? Yes, I suppose so. The, at the time, you know, you sort of you go from one crisis to another and, and you get over it and everything seems to be fine again. And there were nice bits in between. But there was, at that time, I think there was only one geriatric psychiatrist for the whole of Cork. And Aidan was on a waiting list and he never got there, which, which would probably have helped, though we did have an excellent GP and excellent care at Cork University Hospital. But it was, you know, his eyesight started to go at the same time. He had macular degeneration. And so just at the time where his brain was starting to act strangely on him, he lost the ability to read. And as I was saying, music never meant much to him. So he would spend days and days and days just lying on his back on the bed, looking up at the ceiling. He hated radio. He hated audio books. And so I think that kind of accelerated everything. A bit. Yeah, I know. It's very difficult, but it's so well described in the book. And Alana, thanks for coming in to talk to us about it. A very strange man, a memoir of Aidan Higgins. But to finish, we thought 
this section of the podcast talking and we decided that it'd be really nice to go back to your description of Dublin in the 1980s, particularly to a memorable trip you and Aidan made to Dublin for Bloomsday, which I think you're going to end this part of the conversation by reading from. And it's a great piece, I think, with a host of famous literary Irish characters, which I'm sure everyone will enjoy listening to. So if you want to lead us into it, Alana, and then maybe I know it's got one of your favourite phrases in the book in it as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So thanks very much. Yes, it was. uh, I was asked by the Mail on Sunday magazine to go to Dublin and Aidan and just to interview someone. And Aidan decided to come with me and I'd already booked a room at the Clarence, which I'd always wanted to stay in because the Irish Times literary editor had a monthly, I think it was, sandwich lunch. How quaint. Mm, <laughs> in I know, the back it, bar. It, it made me jealous when I heard of that. That was Brian <laughs> Fallon, was it? Yes, was it's a that, brilliant yeah. idea. It's lovely to meet other reviewers who are on the same page as you. Such a nice so, idea. You know, as I was mentioning before, it was Tony Cronin, James Plunkett, Benedict Kiley, Brian Fallon himself, who's a great raconteur mm-hmm. and um, generally all that all round person. But it was just coincidental that it happened on Boom's Day. Mm-hmm. So the piece begins. It was the 16th of June, Bloomsday, and the crypto fascists were meeting in the back bar of the Clarence. No one was planning to attend any of the Bloomsday events, which were dismissed as all rubbish. The choice was a discussion between Anthony Cronin and Francis Stewart in the early evening, or a dramatised reading of Molly Bloom's soliloquy later on. The idea dreamt up between the Tourist Board and the Arts Council of making a big fuss about Bloomsday on the 16th of June, the day described in Ulysses, which they pronounced Ulysses rather than Ulysses, as I had always done, was never going to catch on, they said. The projected annual celebration of Joyce's novel was dismissed as doomed to failure. For a start, hardly anyone read it these days. It was terribly overrated. The conversation turned to more interesting topics. We had an early supper at Nico's, a rather ordinary Italian restaurant in Dame Street. Ulick O'Connor was eating there alone, and Aidan, who knew him but didn't like him, carefully chose a table that was out of his sight line. This was just as well, because on a previous visit to Dublin to attend a book launch in the Shelburne Hotel, hosted by my then-publisher Hamish Hamilton, Ulick had threatened the English writer Robert Nye, a fellow Hamish Hamilton author I had run into on the Dublin train, with fisticuffs for taking advantage of Charlie Hawkey's tax exemption scheme. He very nearly knocked Robert down the stairs. Alarmed at this unprovoked aggression from an apparent madman, being unaware of Ulick's reputation as a sportsman and respected author, Robert and I had jumped straight into a taxi and returned to Houston Station for the last train back to Cork. After the meal, Aidan and I walked up to Stephen's Green and he showed me the garden for the blind, which he had been telling me about the previous week. I thought it was a wonderful idea, a garden that you could smell and touch with plant labels in Braille. The reality was much smaller than I expected, a square enclosure with just one wooden bench heavily scented by lavender. But it was nice that he had remembered to show it to me. 
As we left the green, Aidan pointed out the place where he had once seen Siobhan McKenna feeding the ducks. He was in awe of her beauty on stage, but said that in person, her features were too big for conventional beauty. They were best seen from the middle of the stalls. Whenever he mentioned her, he recalled her having to be restrained from throwing herself into Michal McLeomor's grave, which seemed to Aidan the height of romance. She had died aged 63 the previous November, a few days before Aidan and I met. There was a kind of magic in walking across the green in the long summer evening with someone who had so many memories of Dublin, gazing at the bright lights of the stately Shelburne Hotel. We didn't cross over to the hotel, but continued on the same side of the street to a bar called the Pembroke Lounge. Soon after we had settled with our drinks, I noticed a small, untidy man come in the emergency exit and stand there swaying to and fro, staring around the room. He was greeted warmly by Aidan as Michael Hartnett. As soon as the poet started talking, his appearance and insobriety were forgotten, and I was riveted. He told us he was translating the poems of the Spanish mystic St. John of the Cross into both Irish and English at the same time, if I understood correctly. He had a new collection coming out in July, a necklace of wrens. We must come to the launch. He asked after Derek Mann and said he was the best around. Best poet, presumably. He left soon after with a distracted air, saying that he hadn't meant to stop. He was looking for someone who owed him money. We moved on for one drink at the Horseshoe Bar in the Shelburne, feeling the need of a little luxury on what had turned into a cold, rainy evening. Oh, thank you so much, Alana. And that image of Michael Hartnett <laughs> coming into the to the Pembroke Lounge. Yes. Uh, oh, fantastic. And I, I, it, was, it was great to hear that he thought Derek was the best around. <laughs> and presumably he did mean poet all right. But a necklace of wrens as well. What a beautiful yes, what a landmark. collection of poems. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it's great that you, you trapped all those characters <laughs> in such a short piece. Thank you for sharing it with us and the crypto fascists. <laughs> absolutely brilliant. <laughs> um, but we're going to move on now, Alana, to the exciting bit where we're going to ask you to rise to the toaster challenge. Peter is getting the bread ready and the toaster ready. And you have a really interesting book that you want to talk to us about today. So I'm going to count you in. One, two, three. The toast is going down and off you go. So my toaster challenge choice is a collection of stories, Songs for the Flames by Juan Gabriel Vasquez, translated by Anne McLean. I came to reread this book while I was reading Garcia Marquez's autobiography, Living to Tell the Tale thinking it might help me find out what to do with a collection I have of pieces written about West Cork and the West of Ireland over the years, some stories, some historical accounts, some essays. And I realised all of a sudden that I should look at the West of Ireland the way Garcia Marquez looks at Macondo and turn it into an invented place that is neither fictional nor historical. Then I remembered the Vasquez collection that I'd read and loved earlier this year, and I went back to it with fresh eyes. Juan Gabriel Vasquez is a very successful novelist. His parents were lawyers in Bogotá. He had a wealthy background, and 
as soon as he graduated in Colombia, he went off to live in Paris and be a writer, as you do if you can afford it, from um, that part of Latin America and, of course, Buenos Aires as well. And he stayed for 16 years in Paris, Belgium and Barcelona and is back in Colombia since 1999. And he says much of his fiction is motivated by a desire to understand Colombia. That's what made him start writing about it. And he hasn't stopped yet. According to Ariel Dorfman, the playwright, he has succeeded Garcia Marquez as the literary grandmaster of Colombia. And Lev Grossman in Time magazine said, like Bolaño, Vasquez is a master stylist and a virtuoso of patient pacing and intricate structure. Well, he's nothing like Bolaño. His two novels, The Sound of Things Falling and The Shape of Ruins, did very well. The first one won the Impact Award in Dublin and others, and The Shape of Ruins was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize in 2019. His translator, Anne McLean, is excellent, which is a great help. And a quote from him, he said he loathes the word autofiction. For me, novels begin with people, and it's only through the writing that I find out what my theories are. And the same goes for his story. He's often a character in them, and you never quite know where the documentary bit ends and the story begins. In this, he's similar to a lot of people working at the moment, including Jeff Dyer, who said, I like writing stuff that is only an inch from life, but all of the art is in that inch. But as someone pointed out, the habit of including the narrator in the proceedings is a very old one and actually goes back to Cervantes and Don Quixote. So what are we getting so excited about? Well, this is the introduction to his story, Woman on the Riverbank, just to show you how thoroughly documentary he gets. It begins, I have always wanted to write the story the photographer told me, but I could not have done so without her permission or her collusion. Other people's stories are inviolable terror. Other people's stories are inviolable territory. Or that's how it's always seemed to me, because often there is something in them that informs or defines a life. And stealing them in order to write them is much worse than revealing a secret. So there you are thrown into his world. Um, there are nine stories in the collection. Four of them are old, and you can actually tell that the older stories are slightly more conventional than the new ones, which include that one, Woman on the Riverbank, another one called Frogs, Us the Boys, and the title story song for the Flames. He's going through something that a lot of writers seem to have been through in the last 20 years or so, including myself, which is a rejection of conventional fiction. I hardly read any novels. I read stories and biographies and autobiographies but not what the London critics are now calling the makey-uppy stuff, which, you know, novels start to seem kind of old-fashioned and conventional. Fiction and non-fiction is no longer, I think, the rigid divide that it was. And if you read Gabriel Vasquez's stories, you'll see what I mean. One of the ones I liked most that I'm absolutely mad about, in fact, is called 
airport, no, the airport. It's called the airport, and it's based on a real incident when Vasquez was a student in Paris and kind of hard up for money. He managed to get a day-long job as an extra in a film directed by Roman Polanski in which an outpost of Charles de Gaulle Airport is set up as Madrid's Baraka Airport and all the extras had to have a Mediterranean look about them. And, you know, with a beginning like that, which is the real life bit, you really don't need makey-uppy stuff. So this, this day spent, and he got glimpses of Polanski behind the camera looking very thin and frail. And this led him on to contemplate the terrible murder of Sharon Tate, which he subsequently researched in terrible detail. And that forms the core of the story. So you have the two parts. They're both based on reality, but the way they are knitted together, I suppose you could say, is is what turns them into a story. And his role in it as the... (laughs) the hapless um, extra of Mediterranean aspect. Um, another of the early, earlier stories, The Double, is a very sad one about um, a rich kid at school who somehow draws the right lotto thing and is excused military service while the guy next to him in the register is sent off to fight and do his time in the Colombian army and dies. And only much later on does he discover that this man's father has been tracking his career as a writer, keep clipping out all the cuttings, keeping notebooks and so on. So it's very sad and very touching. And um, how am I doing for time? Am I going on and on? I think the toast is about to burn, (laughs) but in a good way. We're having happy burning toast because that was so interesting. And I think what you're saying about the way writers and readers are kind of getting fed up of conventional fiction is so interesting. I was thinking of we covered a brilliant short story writer, Lucia Berlin, recently, and she herself did that that. where she was, you know, an inch as you were saying, as as um, you were saying earlier on, very, very close to a real life. And you're wondering, is it fact or is it fiction? But it doesn't matter because it's absolutely brilliant. Or also, I was thinking of Valeria Luiselli, The Lost Children Archive, which her book, The Lost Children Archive. Oh, yes, that's Archive, wonderful. Yeah, which just won the, the um, International Dublin Literature Award this year. Again, very much kind of very close to her life as well. Actually, we um, I was one of the judges of that award this year and we spoke to her in New York and she said that she it's not documentary what she writes, but at the same time, it's, it's very close. So I, I do think that's so interesting. Um, I haven't read Songs for the Flames, so I'm really interested in reading it. What about you, Peter? Did you think it sounded so interesting? No, it does sound fascinating. Yeah. And I hadn't, because I mean, I suppose a lot of people will, will, will know him through that. You know, the, first, the, the book that won, that was translated obviously into English and that won the impact. And that would have been their introduction to him. But yeah, this is, it's great to, to hear of this work as well. Songs for the Flames. So thank you to Alana Hopkins for coming in today to The Breakfast Table to talk to us about a book that she loves, Songs for the Flames by Juan Gabriel Vasquez, a collection of fantastic short stories. But most importantly, for coming in to talk about a very strange man, a memoir of Aidan Higgins, published by New Island Books this year. We were delighted to have you, Alana, and many thanks for coming in. Thank you very much for the invitation and congratulations on the podcast. I'm a great fan. Oh, thank you. That's good. Thank you, Alana. Bye. 
We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so... We'll be back again. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.